Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place. Like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Kirsten Monroe, author of The Production of Everyday Life in Eco-Conscious Households, Compromise, Conflict, Complicity, published this year by Bristol University Press. Dr. Monroe, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much. To start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Sure. I'm an assistant professor of political science at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley, um, which is all the way at the very, very south tip of Texas. But I wrote this book when I was living in Portland, Oregon. And um, I moved to Portland, Oregon when I was 18 years old in May of 2001 on a Greyhound bus with everything I owned. And I'd lived there on and off between... um, 2001 and 2017. And during that time, I had a lot of time to observe the very strange and interesting people of Portland. And so it was based on these observations that I decided to write write the book um, based on qualitative interviews with families, with young children. Um, I'm an economist by training, so I bring that to how I think about the topic, but I also bring a background in Marxist feminism to thinking about the subject. Okay, so let's get to know these eco-conscious households a little better. So how did you define the set of people you were interested in looking at? How did you find them and get them to talk to you? And kind of what kind of people are they? What are their, their backgrounds and characteristics of this set of households that you're looking at? Absolutely. So when I first set out to study these households, I knew I wanted to study families with young children um, because families with young children are at a very particular point in the life cycle where resources, both time and money, are particularly constrained. And what I thought I would find is white, politically progressive, pretty affluent, educated, green, conspicuous consumers, the kind of people that I've been encountering in Portland, Oregon, and observing for 15 years. And 
maybe we have some images like the TV show Portlandia of this kind of eco-conscious Portland person, someone dressed up in ethically sourced hemp clothing, ethnic jewelry. Um, maybe there's the scene from Portlandia where a couple is out at a fancy restaurant and they're given a photo and a biographical dossier of Colin, the local chicken on the menu. And so this is kind of who I thought I would be encountering as a self-described sustainable household. Uh, an affluent, white, heterosexual couple headed nuclear family, the kind of people who are installing solar panels on their house, buying organic meat in a hybrid vehicle from an expensive store. And I thought what people would be doing, and I turned out to be wrong, uh, was spending a ton of money on a green consumer lifestyle that was well-intentioned, of course, but very superficial. But the people I actually wound up speaking to told me something very different about their lives. They were not primarily engaged in a green, conspicuous consumption. Really what they were doing was engaged in a very time-intensive form of household production. And so the people that I talked to um, were all kinds of different household configurations, and that really also wound up informing my analysis. So we had single parents, blended families, families with grandparents living in them, intentional communities with multiple families living together, co-housing, same-sex couples, trans parents, trans kids, you know, kind of every possible household configuration you could think of. And so I think that brings me to a second place where I was incorrect about what I would find, which is I was expecting, like a lot of the feminist literature about household production, thinks about women as engaging in kind of the being burdened with additional household production tasks and women in heterosexual headed households, couple headed households being really the instigators of pro-environmental activities. And because only around half of my households were a heterosexual couple headed household, and even in those households, it was often the men who were the drivers of the pro-environmental activities, I kind of began painting a very different picture. And finally, what I found is that a lot of the families I spoke with were not affluent at all. And the ones who were affluent told me they really needed time. And the ones who were not affluent told me what they really needed more than money was time to engage in these really time-intensive eco-household production activities. And then how did you go about actually finding these people as your kind of uh, sampling strategy, I guess you could call it? Um, So... I had a pretty large network myself of people having lived in the city on and off for a long time. So I began there, kind of reaching out to everyone that I knew. I also posted on Facebook communities for eco-conscious parents, of which there are many in the area, some of them kind of more intense than others. And I also went to meetup groups and um, some events for low-income diaper programs 
And um, so I kind of got out into the city and put up flyers. My friend, my dear friend, who is also herself an eco-conscious parent, uh, made a, a beautiful flyer for me. She's an artist and illustrator. And so I put that flyer in the sorts of places that I thought eco-conscious families might go. Um, but a lot of the work was working contacts. And once I interviewed someone asking if they might know additional people. And, you know, Portland is the whitest city in America. And so that's a big part of the reason I was expecting most of my informants to be white. But um, what I actually wound up finding in my sample was diversity that was kind of ethnic diversity and racial diversity that was more than what you might expect just from a random sample in Portland. And it sounds like, so then what's bringing these people together is not, you know, like their socioeconomic class or their family structure, but it's sort of a, a set of values that they're trying to pursue this idea of sustainability. So can you talk a bit about, you know, what do these people see themselves as trying to accomplish by being sustainable? So I think that's an interesting question because I was also expecting to find people along a green spectrum. But what I actually found was a set of different priorities in the sustainability realm. So some people were really concerned with avoiding waste. Some people saw technology as a major solution to their problems. Some people were really concerned with preserving nature, whether or not people were part of the equation. Some people were really concerned with community. And so what I saw is in each household, they kind of had a different combination, generally of two very strong priorities out of that list. Um, and so I think that made things very interesting because we might have a household who is really concerned with self-sufficiency, not wasting, and um, technology as a solution, right? And so they would be really big on installing light switches that turn off lights and solar panels and um you know, different energy efficiency technologies around their household. But what they ate was mostly takeout and frozen vegetarian meals. Or if you kind of go to the other side, a very um, health-focused family, they told me that they hadn't been thinking about saving energy at all. So what I learned about sustainability in these households is that it's not just kind of a deep green to light green kind of continuum spectrum. What I actually saw is that sustainability means very different things to different households, depending on what their specific priorities are. And where are people getting these priorities from, as well as the, the information that they're using to implement it, right? So if they, they decide that they really want to focus on health, for example, well, so how do they figure out, you know, what things they should eat to be healthy? Um, you know, where do they get the, the information that 
they're using to select these practices. That's so interesting. So I have a whole chapter that's called research, doing their own research. That's all about how they try to find this information. A lot of people are using the internet and specific websites that they think are reliable. You know, this phrase, doing your own research in the pandemic has really taken on a different meaning. And, you know, I've saw so many memes in the pandemic of a picture of a, um, a headstone that said, did their own research 2000, uh, 2020, right? Um, and for these households doing their own research, means that they can't trust the mainstream ways of getting things done and they can't trust the government and they can't trust normal sources to kind of more mainstream sources of information. So they'll have particular websites where they get a lot of information about these practices. They also rely on each other, kind of community members. They also, many of them say that their college education for college educated informants were was really important. And then a lot of them work in what I call the, the kind of sustainability industrial complex. And in that sustainability industrial complex, they wind up learning a lot of these skills on the job that are transferable to household production. So their waged work teaches them things that then also increase their productivity in eco-conscious household production. And, you know, I think for, for many people, they're, they're not doing this in a vacuum. Their personal contacts are very important for influencing their decisions and validating those choices and providing additional information and lowering some of the costs of doing all this research. But I think research into practices and choices winds up consuming a lot of the time of these household members and the informants that I talk to. Okay, and you use the word production there in your answer, which I think is an important part of what you're saying in this book is looking at household activities as a form of production, not just of consumption. Like we usually think, well, production that happens in like a factory and then people consume at home. But you're really saying that people have to engage in a production process within the household uh, as well. So can you kind of elaborate on that and sort of how looking at the household as a site of production helps us to understand what's going on with these eco-conscious households? Absolutely. So Margaret Reed, in her dissertation in the 1930s, she pointed out that the products we buy in the store aren't yet ready to consume in the form that we buy them in. You always need to mix those purchased inputs that we buy with money from waged work or you know, government inputs or theft. Um, we have to take those products from the store, those commodities, and mix them with our time energy and know-how to create something that can actually be used by the household. That kind of input, these are inputs into a household production process, kind of know-how or competence or human capital are different ways to think about kind of the knowledge that goes into the process. 
the purchased inputs and then the unwaged time of household members. And I think this causes me to draw really different conclusions than a lot of the other literature about green consumption because I'm recognizing the huge amounts of time and effort that go into these practices. And part of the reason I wound up doing that is just from talking to my informants. You know, this is not how I expected the research to go and it was not the conclusion I expected to draw at all. But what I found is that the people I talked to were exhausted. They were so tired. And it's kind of a cliche that parents of young children are tired, but I was just so struck by just how exhausted they were. And almost all the interviews I did in the homes with the informants. So it was kind of a, you know, natural setting. And yeah, they were even the ones with a lot of additional family help with living grandparents just told me they were completely pressed for time. One interesting example is a single mom told me that sometimes, and she was like very, very concerned about the environment. She's an environmental educator. And she said, sometimes she's just so exhausted that when she has some, a jar of yogurt in the back of the fridge that's gone off, sometimes she has to say enough is enough and just throw it away rather than take the time to wash out the jar, uh, dry it, and then properly sort it for recycling. And so I think we can have a lot more compassion for what these households are doing and what they're going through when we think about these processes as being production rather than consumption. And I also think it's it's more accurate. But, you know, like, like I said, I, I entered the research kind of having maybe um, an unfair attitude towards the households, thinking they would be buying a tote bag and carrying their natural groceries back to their house in a Prius. And that was just absolutely not the case. Um, And so I think that's also where the Marxist feminist element comes in. And the second chapter of the book winds up being a model that I developed based on the research um, for thinking through how these different inputs, know-how, time, and purchase inputs can be combined in different proportions to produce everyday life. So depending on what resources you might have available to you and what constraints you might have available to you and the priorities of your household, your household production process is going to look very different. And so, you know, someone like Gary Becker, who creates this famous and and much hated model of household production winds up actually being very important for me because a a key insight of Gary Becker's model is that households can get things done in everyday life using varying proportions of inputs and then subject to constraints. And so I, I understand that bringing kind of this arch neoliberal economist into the mix Um, And adapting him to a Marxist feminist perspective might sound kind of strange, but at the same time, turning Becker on his head really helps me 
see clearly what it is that these households are doing, which is they're not just buying things. You know, they're they're engaging in very, very time and knowledge intensive practices with the with the inputs that they are buying. Yeah. I want to mention, since it's come up a couple of times in your answer there, that I really appreciate the way in the book you're very clear about how what you found in the research was not what you expected going in, and that the theory that you've got to explain this is something that developed out of what you were hearing from these families. Because I know there's always that temptation, you know, once you finish the research and you know what it says, to kind of write about it as if, you know, you knew that all along. That's, that was what you were looking for all along. Um, and I appreciate that, that your book shows that that wasn't what you were looking for all along, but it's what came out of actually getting to know and, and talking to these households. Yeah, and I think it was impossible to have kind of a snarky attitude towards these activities. Um, when you're sitting in someone's house and they put a baby in your arms and, you know, you're sitting on, on the floor in their living room on a hectic Saturday morning where they've carved out 90 minutes of their time to tell you about very intimate details of their life. And, you know, I think there's... I don't want to call it a deception element, but I suspect that part of the reason that people were willing to make that time for me is because they suspected that I would be advocating for these practices. Um, and that's absolutely not the case, right? The book is, is very critical of the practices that the people are engaging in. Um, like I said, I think I went into the project initially with a bad attitude um, and a little bit of a, a snarkiness, you know, based on my having come into contact with these types of people over a long period of time. Um, but getting to know them, it was it was impossible not to really be impacted and touched by the really good intentions that they were bringing to these activities and, and just how much effort they were bringing to it. And at the same time, for many of them, an awareness that the practices are in many cases not effective, but they keep doing them anyway. Yeah, I think you hit a good balance there that you are you're very respectful and compassionate towards the people you're writing about while also being very critical of the idea that well if we all just did these you know eco-conscious household things you know if we all just sorted our recycling better if we all just turned our heat down then that's kind of the pathway to a more sustainable society right and i i think you touched on something interesting there which is that there are a few practices that I wind up advocating in the conclusion. And I wind up advocating them for them because they're these interesting practices that don't actually require more money or more time. And turning down your heat um, or air conditioning is, is definitely one of them, you know, that doesn't require extra money or time. It but what it does require is rethinking what indoor comfort means. Um, in, a, in a country that's obsessed with being comfortable. And the other one is bathing less and and washing your clothes less. Another another thing that is difficult in, in a country that's obsessed with being clean. 
But I think that those are, are areas that people can start thinking about. But what they require us to do is really rethink society, the meaning of practices, who we live with, um, and, and what we do in our households. And that's a much bigger problem than just um, making little tweaks here and there. Okay, so let's dive into some of the specifics of some of these practices to get an idea of, you know, what are some of the things that these households are doing? You know, what is the, the intended goal and what's kind of the actual outcomes of the, the things that these households are doing? And in the book, you kind of divide it up based on the sort of different aspects of life that they are uh managing. So let's start with one that we just mentioned, which is heating and cooling uh, the house. So what are some of the things that people were doing and what were the, the outcomes from those choices? One major thing that people are doing is refusing to install air conditioning, um, even in a region that's increasingly hot in the summers. Um, another thing that they're doing in terms of heating and cooling is thinking about heating and cooling as, or thinking about being comfortable as not just heating and cooling, but thinking outside the household. So rather than changing their home temperature in hot weather to be a particular temperature that they find comfortable, they might leave the household and go to a splash pad or the river or a movie um, instead of just thinking about how to make their home more comfortable or they'll go outside or go in the basement rather than um, thinking about their home as needing to be a particular temperature year round. They also have some pretty complicated practices related to heat flushing and passive cooling. You know, I think passive cooling is a little bit of a misnomer because it winds up being very active. So they they learn and develop these practices related to opening and closing blinds and windows at certain types of times of day in hot weather. Another thing that they do in cold weather is, you know, they, they might not use their heating at all. I had some informants that um, have no heating equipment at all in their homes or except maybe in one room that belongs to a child. They might congregate in particular rooms and only heat the rooms that they're sitting in and wear additional clothes. But it also really depends on the household because some of the more health-oriented households, like I mentioned, my informant Heather told me that she doesn't think about saving energy at all. So some of the negative consequences of this is that you find two things. And, and I talk about this when I'm talking about different conflicts that arise because of these practices, that there are pretty major conflicts that arise between, between um, members of couples related to heating and cooling and also with members outside the household. So people will change the temperature of their home to a different, more, you know, quote unquote, comfortable temperature when they have guests visiting. Um, and so that's kind of one interesting con consequence, but the other one is these, these conflicts. So for example, in the household that only has working heating equipment in their child's room, 
the entire rest of the home is unheated and it gets below freezing in Portland in the winter and it rains, you know, almost every day. And it's not comfortable to be in an unheated house. And so the woman in this couple told me that she gets home from work each day and then has to basically sit under a comforter in the living room on the sofa and not move until it's time to go to bed. And in her household, her husband uh, is a stay-at-home dad and also a self-employed artist. And he doesn't mind having no heating equipment in the house. And so they kind of had a little bit of a conflict, kind of a disagreement in front of me about the lack of heating equipment in their home. Because the woman in that couple, who I called Ivy, is miserable. But then she describes herself as a whiner for wishing that she had heating equipment in her home. Another memorable conflict was between a couple that I call Victor and Vanessa. Vanessa's a stay-at-home mom with three kids, and Victor is the you know, earns the money for the household. He demands things like three hot meals a day from Vanessa and a lot of very intensive mothering practices. For example, she did diaper-free babies, which means that rather than use diapers on her children at all, she avoids the decision about whether to do cloth or um, disposable diapers by 24-7 monitoring each of her children as babies for any signs that they need to eliminate and then holding the baby over a sink, um, which is an incredibly time-consuming practice. So thinking about those priorities in that household, what Victor wound up doing is programming his household's thermostat during the day when he and the children are not home to 60 degrees Fahrenheit, which is too cold for Vanessa. And he described that temperature as being the temperature when no one is home. Well, Vanessa is home because she's a stay-at-home mom. So I thought it was very revealing that Victor thinks about his wife as being no one. And it was kind of one of the most uncomfortable moments in the entire study because Vanessa was yelling at her husband that she really felt it was unfair that he's programmed the, that she doesn't know how to program the thermostat and that he's programmed the thermostat in a way that makes her uncomfortable every day. So there are, you know, real negative consequences to some of these practices. And, you know, I think that example also shows a way that in many of these households, men are the drivers of the pro-environmental activities. And then how about waste disposal? What are some of the practices and the, the consequences of them in that realm? So I think recycling is really interesting. All of the households I spoke with recycle, and they don't just recycle, they recycle following the rules very carefully, right? They research recycling rules. They know what's recyclable, what's not. They wash out the containers first, make sure they're dry, 
They even take additional recycling to recycling centers or grocery stores for things that they know aren't accepted at curbside. Recycling also winds up causing some conflicts in households. Um, My informants, David and Dana, had a fight about recycling in front of me because David likes to put freezer boxes into the recycling. And so I think something that many people who are not master recyclers don't know is that boxes that stored frozen foods are almost never recyclable. And so David will put those items into the recycling or plastic clamshells from takeout food. He'll put those into the recycling, even though he knows they are not recyclable. Um, because he thinks they should be recyclable. And that kind of caused a yelling, another episode of yelling among my informants when his wife, Dana, started yelling, that is not recyclable. The master recyclers have been very clear. Um, Something along those lines, kind of shouting. And, you know, that, that interview was very early in my research of conducting these ethnographic interviews. And so it was a bit shocking to see the intensity of the conflict over waste disposal. Um, But in most households, there's one household, where there's multiple adults, there's one household member who's kind of the designated master recycler who winds up picking through recycling mistakes that the other household members have made. Um, and, And again, that winds up driving some conflict um, the, the diaper choice was an interesting one that my informant, um, Jim, was also kind of the major environmental driver in his household. And he did a ton of research trying to figure out which was the more environmental choice, um, cloth or disposable diapers. He wound up going with cloth diapers And then in the end, when more research, more information became available, he believes now that he made the incorrect choice and feels a lot of guilt about that. Another practice that kind of winds up having unintended consequences related to waste is selective flushing. In other words, only flushing the toilet for a bowel movement and not for urine. And I would say most of the households I spoke with engage in this practice. None of them had heard the term selective flushing, but all of them knew immediately what it was. And they call it, if it's yellow, let it mellow. If it's brown, flush it down. Some people found about this practice from roommates or in college or from family members from growing up in California during a drought in the 1980s. One informant found out about this practice from the movie Meet the Falkers, but this is also a controversial practice among household members um, for thinking about when it's time to flush um, and also different kind of folk wisdom about what gender has more foul-smelling urine and the impact of proximity based on whether you're sitting or standing. So there are some interesting um, theories about about selective flushing. But for the most part, it was a practice that people engaged in without even 
speaking to one another about, and then, you know, kind of going back to recycling, I think something that, that a lot of the household members I spoke with told me is that they know that recycling is not effective, right? They know it's going overseas. They know it's being incinerated. They know it's making the people who are processing that way sick. And that's not actually a more environmental choice to recycle, but they do it anyway. Um, And so I think that touches on how a lot of these practices wind up just being habits that people engage in, whether or not they're effective, kind of without regards to their efficacy. But, um, oh, sorry, a, a final thing related to waste that I found really interesting is is the concept of packaging. This was another surprise finding for me, which is that, you know, most people when they were talking about trash didn't seem to have very extreme feelings when it came to the subject of trash, right? It's just trash is, is something that you expect to have in, in a household, right? It's a fact of life. But when they were talking about trash in the form of packaging, even my most laid back informants um, became very passionate and very angry talking about packaging, in particular packaging from Amazon orders, but also food packaging and other packaging that they see as being unnecessary. And kind of the ways that that packaging accumulates very quickly in a busy household with kids. And finally, how that packaging is this very uncomfortable reminder of their collusion with the economy and society that they oppose and that they think is harmful for the environment. So I think when they see this packaging accumulating in their home, it reminds them that there kind of is no perfectly environmental choice. Okay, so then to kind of bring this together, right, if a lot of these practices that people are doing are not effective, they're, you know, taking up a lot of time that people have uh, for maybe not very much uh, or even a counterproductive outcome, what is the, the right way to go? How do we make our way of life more sustainable? Uh, if not, you know, the sort of household level, uh, eco-friendly behavior. So what I point to in the conclusion is that a lot of our choices are constrained by the way society is organized, right? People live in these households that are designed to contain a nuclear family. In those households, they are built in a particular way, right? And we have this huge housing stock that suggests a particular way of living um, and organizing people in space, right? We have cities that are designed a certain way. We have norms and expectations about what life is supposed to be like. And all of that provides this really hard constraint towards doing things in a different way, right? We have to sell our time to get money to buy the stuff that we need, right? Unless we're going to live like the Unabomber in the woods, like trapping rabbits and eating berries in a shed. Um, And not to say that's not a valid way to live, right? Um, 
But if you're going to live an on-the-grid life, there are really strong constraints and barriers to living in a different way. And so what I point to in the conclusion of the book is that we really, I, I think, for a more sustainable or eco-conscious um, world, that we need to rethink some of our fundamental assumptions about how people should live, whether that's the different actions that we take to feel comfortable when it's cold outside, or even who we should be living with in a household um, and how many people should be living together. And, you know, so what I point to is that that's extremely difficult to do within capitalism. And when we talk, you know, when we think about an alternative to capitalism, you know, I think a lot of people point to different green inputs, right? Just shifting around these proportions of how much is provided by the state, how much is from industry, how much electricity is from wind or solar, just shifting around those proportions. And what the model that I talk about in chapter two points to is that shifting the proportions doesn't change the fundamental production process, right? If I have a little bit more provided to me by the state, maybe I work a little bit less, but that doesn't really change the production process in my household. If I have a little bit more of my energy produced by solar power, but I'm still cranking my heat, then that production process hasn't changed. And so what I point to is the importance of changing the meanings of these practices, the social meanings, but also reorganizing society entirely and changing the underlying production processes that produce day-to-day life. Um, And it's not enough to change those production processes at the industrial scale, um, socialism or communism that's sustainable if you want to use those words, requires also rethinking the household. Okay, so big task for us as a society, but um, I think your book gives us some good pointers there. So as we're moving towards the end of our time, I want to give you an opportunity to give a shout out or a thank you to anyone whose help was important to you as you were writing this book. Well, I think the most important shout out goes to the informants. You know, they're so tired, so busy, and they made the time to welcome me into their homes. And, you know, this, these are, this is their story. Um, and it's their lives that I'm, that I'm talking about in the, in the book. So they're really kind of the most important. Thank you. Um, I'm really grateful to University of Bristol Press who made this whole process as easy as possible. Um, and, you know, my own household members who took on a lot of the household production while I was in the thick of doing this research and writing, or I have much gratitude to them. Okay. And then our traditional final question is, what are you working on next? What kind of projects are you taking up now that this book is out? So in, in the month before all the pandemic shut down, lockdowns, I did another set of interviews with eco-conscious households in Brighton in the UK. And so my hope is 
for my next project, I'm going to be writing up those interviews and comparing them to the interviews that I did with households in Portland, Oregon, in the United States, in order to compare what things are same and different um, across different contexts where you have different meanings of indoor comfort, um, different infrastructures. You know, for example, most people in the UK don't use a clothes dryer, whereas most of the households that I talk to in the US do use a clothes dryer, even the super eco ones. Um, and so I think that will be a really interesting way to push this research forward and to look at it in kind of an international um, comparison. And then um, on a more theoretical side, I'm working on a short book that's kind of a, a guide to Marxist feminism and the key concepts in Marxist feminist theories to help people who are interested in Marxist feminism, but who might be intimidated by, you know, all of the debates and lingo um, that kind of has accumulated when you try to get into a 50-year-old um, set of theories that are contradictory and and complicated. So that's that's another project that I'm working on now. All right. Well, those both sound very interesting. Definitely be looking forward to seeing what comes of of those two uh, projects. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This has been a conversation with Kirsten Monroe, author of The Production of Everyday Life in Eco-Conscious Households, Compromise, Conflict, Complicity, published this year by Bristol University Press.